Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discuss- discussing characters from Picnic in the Ruins by Todd Peterson. And joining us for the discussion is all-star guest Todd Peterson. Welcome back, Todd. Oh, it's great to be here. So glad to have you on. We've had you many times, but this is the first time we get to talk about one of your novels uh, as the subject of our discussion. And frankly, it's overdue. I'm glad we're doing it now. I know. I'm going to have to take it easy on myself, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So Picnic in the Ruins was a novel published in 2021. Written by Todd Peterson, and it tells the story of several characters getting caught up in a web of theft and murder with very few understanding why. That's my like bird's eye abstracted view of what happens in this novel. That that is that works. <laughs> Even the people committing the murders don't seem to understand why. <laughs> in some instances, yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. I, I think everybody <laughs> wakes up at various points in time in the book and they're just wondering what's happening to me. What did I just do? <laughs> yes. It's one of those uh, interesting cases where everyone is reactive almost. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, like things just keep happening and, and it's fascinating to see how people deal with the chaos that they find themselves in. Uh, and when I say they're reactive, I don't think, you know, I'm saying that any of these characters are like la- lacking agency. It's just the plot is not an I want plot <laughs> driven by, uh, you know, someone striving to achieve the goal that motivates their life. I, I would say that if anything, it is a plot based around everybody getting the thing they hoped wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Uh, yes. So, uh, I mean, I, I, we probably should jump ahead a little and, uh, get towards that plot discussion. Normally I ask people how they came to the work that feels a little odd in this instance, uh, to ask you, I came to it because it was plugged several times on this podcast and sounded really good. (laughs) So I got it and I've given it as a gift to a few people too. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, a little bit of trivia. Todd Peterson is a frequent guest on the protagonist podcast and Todd Peterson teaches, teaches at Southern Utah university in creative writing and screen studies. And this is uh, your second novel with, uh, uh, Oh, what is the name of your publisher? Sorry, Counterpoint. Counterpoint. Yeah. And your first one was, it needs to look like we tried. Correct. Yes, that's right. Any other trivia that you think should be shared about this book or its creation or anything along those lines? Well, part of its backstory, I think is interesting. Um, years and years ago, a colleague of mine here at Southern Utah University uh, responding to some news stories uh, about the fact that uh, young people weren't being seen in the national parks. Um, you know, and that makes sense for what a lot of people think. It's uh, people who retire to have, you know, time uh, or international travelers. Um, and so we got together uh, here at Southern Utah and reached out to colleagues of ours. We were teaching in the honors program here at the time. And we just started connecting with other faculty who were concerned about this as well. And, you know, the next thing we know, like a year and a half later, we had um, uh, been awarded a Centennial Initiatives grant by the National Parks. And the next thing I know is we were taking uh, honor students from all over the country to national parks all over the country um, for these kind of week, week and a half long adventures where we were simultaneously teaching them about the park how to camp, how to be there, what is stewardship, what's the history of the national parks. And so it was a thing I, I didn't really mean to start learning a lot about, but I started learning a lot of inside uh, track, you know, from Acadia to Denali um, to Joshua Tree, kind of all over seeing how parks worked from the inside. And when I kind of was sitting down um, in 2016, trying to be like, well, what's my next book going to be? Um, my agent was talking to me like, Hey, some of the stuff that you're working on, it's feeling a lot like, uh, crime, not like a traditional procedural kind of crime stuff, but something else. And why don't you think about that? And I thought, well, one of the things I've been hearing a lot about lately is the crime of antiquities theft, um, where it's not just kind of the, the more kind of, um, idea of cultural appropriation as a thing, but really literally like stealing pots and stealing, uh, sandals and and spear points and other kinds of artifacts from out uh from on the public lands um from indigenous people's land um and uh the whole market that was connected to that and i realized oh man this is 
this is maybe like one of the most criminal things that's going on around here. Um, so yeah, why not see what would happen if I could write a crime novel about that? And that's what came out of it. Um, just spending a lot of time in national parks, living down in Southern Utah, talking to people, um, talking to Paiute, uh, uh, people who kind of knew the back, scene of this, talking to parks people who knew the back scene of all this. Uh, a friend of mine who's retired now, but was uh, a park superintendent down here. When I told him the story of the book, he said, huh, I thought you said you were writing fiction, <laughs> <laughs> which I, you know, that's <laughs> good joke. And also got me thinking. Um, mm -hmm. But if you've been paying attention to the news, anybody in the news, Washington post, um, Salt Lake Tribune, uh, the things that I write about in the book, they're happening right now. They're unfolding in the world. Um, and I kind of like to say I wrote about an imaginary place because I didn't want people going there. Um, but maybe it's a little bit like MASH, you know. It's about uh, Korea, wink, wink, Vietnam, wink, wink. Right. Um, so people get a sense that this is about bear's ears, but it, it, it isn't really. It's about bear's ears or Escalante Glance Staircase or, um, you know, any of these kind of monuments that are contested right now, um, particularly by people in Utah who um, some people want them and some people don't. Um, but all the stuff that, that we're talking about with who owns the past and uh, some of the things that pop up in the novel, um, you just kind of can just hit news feeds and see mm -hmm. it happening and unfolding in real time right now. It makes me think a little bit about um, the things that carried Tim O'Brien's collection of short stories yeah. where he writes a short story that is just like gripping about the Vietnam War. And he's a Vietnam War veteran and about a battle and someone dying. Uh, and you just feel everything that he wants you to feel like he's really a skilled writer to manipulate you. And then the next short story opens with him saying that never happened, but it's the most true story I've written. Um, because a lot <laughs> of his stuff is completely autobiographical about like things that really happened. He's like that that like none of those events actually happened, but it felt exactly like what Vietnam feels like. And and, and that's so true. true. Like you know, people always ask that. It's it wasn't a memoir. I mean, there there's no like one to one relationship to the places, or, except for Bryce Canyon. Bryce Canyon really exists. Um, and it's in the book, and I wanted to anchor it, but everything else, uh, you know, is kind of an amalgamation, or you know, putting two or three different things or different characters together, different time periods um, to, to try to tell a fictional story because there are plenty of great nonfiction books out there about this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, see also the bibliography, but I was really trying to get to another place with it. Mm -hmm. um, using, you can use a crime novel to actually talk about a lot of important social things because people maybe don't feel like a, a sermon's coming. Mm-hmm. And then when, when they're not looking for it, then you can um, kind of deliver a sermon. It's kind of like when my wife says, uh, how did you like that smoothie? And I said, it was great. She said, did you know it was full of kale? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, and when you have characters who are, are the, like, it feels natural for these people to care about these issues and to speak about them in informed ways. Like you can get that stuff in and it's also character revelation, you know, and how they talk about it and how they think about it. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, before we move on to that plot summary, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as episodes of the podcast. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to the plot summary and i want to make note that this is a plot summary because some of the best parts of this book are character voices and quirks which don't really fit as well when you're trying to streamline a plot to get through it quickly and also the descriptions of nature <laughs> um it, <laughs> yeah uh, which again like feels like that, that's something that gets trimmed when you just want to run through the plot that's happening uh and you can tell todd i'm assuming this is accurate for me to say you've spent a lot of time in southern utah and the air northern arizona area <laughs> too yeah, yeah I, can, I can pull a lot of the stuff from memory <laughs> to be able to describe stuff where uh, like it's very vivid descriptions of the unique, uh, you know, natural wonders that exist in those areas. There's some stuff that you might expect from Instagram in there, but then maybe some stuff you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, and the chapters are divided into days. And so I'm just going to run through the days and I've trimmed some of the, the side plots just again for, for uh, speed, because when I first wrote out the plot summary, I was kind of uh, giving a, at least a sentence to like each section in each chapter. And then it was like a eight, nine page summary. I'm like, okay, I've really got to pull back <laughs> on this. So uh, day one of the story, uh, we meet Byron and Lonnie, who are small-time crooks who have been hired to steal maps about Native American artifacts on protected lands from a well-known collector of artifacts. When they break into his house, they're surprised to find that he's home. In a panic, Lonnie kills him, and then they stage it to look like it was a suicide. Sheriff Dalton gets a call, and his deputies speculate that feds cracking down on illegal collecting might be why he committed suicide. Uh, and his name is Bruce, Bruce Clough. Uh, I, th I think I reference his name later on. So uh, we also meet a grad student named Sophia who is studying the impact tourist interactions have on protected sites. Day two, Byron and Lonnie go to deliver the maps they've stolen to the man who had hired them. Byron wants to use the maps to find artifacts that they can sell themselves, but Lonnie doesn't think that's a great idea. Day three, the uh, Ashdown brothers, as Byron and Lonnie, go to meet up with their contact, a man named Scissors. That's not his actual name, but that's what everyone calls him. Uh, a Scissors arrives and pays them in cash for the maps and then tells them to stay at the motel for a while until things cool down uh, from the murder. Sophia has to give a presentation to a large group of tourists, so that's part of her her grad school grant as she's out there doing her her field work she also has to go give these presentations the presentation goes off the rails in a way that is clear evidence that the author of this book had experienced lecturing to large groups um just you can you feel the energy shifting and uh going down side rabbit holes and the speaker trying to pull them back and it's just not happening <laughs> uh then one of the tourists has a heart attack and a german man named dr reinhardt kupfer is a dermatologist and has medical training to perform cpr uh and is able to do that until medics arrive after her presentation sophia has an email from a park ranger named paul he has some days off and wants to take her to a remote site called swallow valley that she was interested in seeing uh, day four scissors has sent photos of the maps to the woman who hired him she says the map to swallow valley is missing and she needs him to find it dalton gets a call uh, about someone at the cluff's house so he goes there uh, but whoever was there is long gone and he notices spots with missing dust on the shelves. so so like there's dust around the shelves and then there's absence of dust that implies things were on these shelves uh, but they've been taken Reinhardt is becoming disenchanted with the tour bus version of the American Southwest that he's experiencing. Growing up in Germany, he had a fascination with Native Americans and their culture, and he wanted an authentic look at it, and that is why he booked this uh, vacation to the United States. On a hike, he does see an arrowhead and pick it up, and he thinks about Sophia's presentation and her questions of who owned the artifacts once and who should own them now. When he goes back to the tour center, he asks a worker about seeing Sophia so that he can give her this... Uh, uh, arrowhead that he found and he gets chewed out for picking up an artifact for, uh, while on a hike saying that's not allowed but then the worker looks at it and says actually this one's no big deal this is one of the fakes that we sell in the gift shop he goes and has a sad meal at the chuck wagon dinner <laughs> for the tour group and meets a japanese man named kenji and todd i have to say your descriptions of like the mass-produced <laughs> food for the chuck wagon dinner was one of the most vivid and appalling things i've ever read <laughs> and it just brought back a sense of memories <laughs> Like yeah, I think many of us little have, frosting. have uh, meals like that. Yep. Uh, day five, Alani and Byron have met some girls, but in the middle of the night, Byron hears one of them get a phone call and he realizes the girls are being paid to watch them. He wakes Alani up and they go back to their house and then get some camping supplies and then drive off. Sophia needs to meet Paul for their adventure. Paul is sort of a mythic figure out here uh, with all sorts of stories about how well he can survive off the land and disappear for days and then just show up again just fine. Uh, Lonnie and Byron stop far enough away from their house that they won't be easily seen but where they can watch it and they see scissors show up and they watch him search their house and then he lights it on fire Paul and Sophia go on a very difficult hike and climb at first it feels sort of romantic to Sophia but then she starts to think Paul is a bit of a jerk it seems like he has something else on his mind uh, than, uh, than a nice date out on a hike uh, Dalton goes to visit Bruce Clough's wife, Raylene, to see if she can help identify what's missing from his office. Raylene's memories are starting to go. She has good days and bad days and sometimes can't remember what's happening now. It's not a great conversation, but Dalton learns that Bruce had a ledger along with the maps that are missing, as well as several artifacts from the shelves. She also references that Bruce was putting stuff back, and that confuses Dalton. Uh, Paul 
And Sophia reached the Swallow Valley, which is a natural amphitheater filled with ancient cliff dwellings. Sophia wants to take pictures and study it because this could be a baseline for what pre-tourist ancient sites look like in the area because it's relatively undisturbed. Uh, but Paul forbids her from doing that. He says as soon as she includes this site on a report or in her dissertation, it will be overrun with tourists and ruined forever. They argue about what preser preservation of ancient sites even means in the context of their jobs. Their argument gets heated. Sophia storms away. She realizes Paul is missing and looks around for him and finds him in a dwelling putting a piece of pottery back and she yells at him for tampering with the site and he says he's not tampering he's putting something back exactly where it was found and taken from decades ago and more arguing ensues uh they have very different philosophies about preservation <laughs> yeah uh day six reinhardt overhears from the tour guides that the korean tourist who had had the heart attack has died and they need to take the whole bus on a detour to get his belongings back to his wife reinhardt offers to take the men man's belongings back and kenji the Japanese man that he met offers to give Reinhardt a ride. Kenji made a very popular phone video game app and had met with Hollywood producers uh, to discuss turning it into a movie. They were unimpressed with his story pitch and gave him a bunch of books to read and then come back with a better pitch. Kenji tells Reinhardt all about the hero's journey that he's been reading about and tells Reinhardt that he can keep a book called The Monomyth on screen. From here on out, Reinhardt identifies everything that happens to him as part of the hero's journey. It is fantastic. Chef's kiss to all of that. I love Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> Lonnie and Byron go and steal a backhoe. <laughs> and this is a point where like, okay, these are not smart men at any point, but when they're stealing a backhoe to go dig up a site on the map, I'm like these, these, these men are, are not operating at a high level here. Uh, and they head to a, find a location on the map and just start digging uh, with, I think it's Byron is the one who's like, we're just going to find a mass of pots. It's not about like not breaking the pots. It's just, we're going to get as many as we can and go sell them and we'll be rich. <laughs> That's their whole plan. <laughs> Uh, Reinhardt is dropped off uh, and gives Mrs. Kwan's belonging or Mr. Kwan's belongings to Mrs. Kwan and then rents a car and decides he's going to follow his bliss and pursue an adventure. Day seven, Reinhardt has stopped at a diner for breakfast. While he's there, two loud brothers sit in a booth next to his and argue over a map that they're looking at. Reinhardt sneaks a picture of it with his cell phone and thinks this is a real life treasure map. Sophia and Paul hike out and she drives uh, him to his truck. He panics when he realizes that one of his guns is missing from the truck, even though the truck and everything is locked like it should be. The gun's just not there. Uh, Reinhardt begins his journey, trying to follow the roads on the map. It's hard to find the right turnoff, but eventually he does. He's driving farther and farther from the main road, admiring the scenery when his rental car hits a large rock on the road that destroys his engine and deploys the airbags. It's very, like, there's not a lot in how you wrote that, but it feels very violent <laughs> when you read it. Like, just the abruptness of everything. Uh, definitely, definitely landed. Uh, Byron starts digging with the backhoe at, at one of the sites on the map. He uncovers some bones, and Lonnie freaks out and tells him to stop. These are real people, but Byron just keeps digging. Sophia comes across the them as she is driving out of the of of uh from her hike and she sees a map spread out on the hood of the truck and she grabs the map she tries to be authoritative and orders them to stop suddenly a gunshot kills lonnie sophia ducks down she barely has a cell signal but she texts paul that she's being shot at and tells him where she climbs up to a hiding spot where he can, she can see what's happening she hears more gunshots kill the operator of the backhoe the gunman, who as readers we know as Scissors, walks around the scene and shoots out the tires of every vehicle there. Paul arrives and is able to pull his gun on, on the shooter and disarm the shooter. Paul handcuffs him, but then Scissors headbutts Paul and is able to pull his hands out from behind his back like an escape trick, an escape artist. And as he's pulling them over his legs, he retrieves a hidden gun and shoots Paul point blank and Paul falls down the canyon. Uh, the Scissors gets the cuffs off and yells for Sophia to come to him with the map but she does not. Reinhardt tries to hike out from his car accident, but realizes he's going to dehydrate and die, so he goes back to his car. Sophia is running from the gunman when she uh, comes across Reinhardt, who is delirious from dehydration and muttering about the hero's journey. A rainstorm comes and drenches them, and they're able to refill their, water bo their, their bottles to hydrate. Uh, day eight. Sophia and Reinhardt begin to hike out. They come across the, they come back to the site with the backhoe and the brothers' bodies. Sophia looks over the canyon edge but doesn't see Paul's body. They're looking for a path down the canyon when a shot rings out and a bullet hits near them, and they both scramble down. And they find Paul injured but alive. When his gun was missing from his truck, he'd put on body armor, and that saved him from the bullet wound. Uh, but his shoulder is dislocated, and he's basically a big bruise <laughs> from his fall. Like, his whole body's a bruise. Uh, with their help, Paul is able to guide Sophia and Reinhardt through paths. Scissors cannot follow uh, through through the canyons until they reach a man who has started calling himself Dreamweaver in the 1960s. I would just say Dreamweaver is a great character. I can't really go in depth describing him. 
here. Uh, but he helped build the internet and is a quirky conspiracy theorist now who's living off the grid. And he agrees to help get them out. Uh, day nine, Dreamweaver gets a polygamous family to drive them out. But that night, Scissors has found them that, uh, with the polygamous family, though one of the wives shoots Scissors in the arm. Day 10, the Pugilos family gets Sophia, Paul, and Reinhardt to another ranger, a Paiute named Kimball. Kimball helps them to hide out, but Scissors finds them there too. Scissors is very dedicated, and he kidnaps Sophia. Sophia wakes up in a motel with a woman who's arguing with Scissors. Eventually, the woman tells Scissors she's not going to pay him to clean up the mess that he made himself and kicks him out. Then the woman starts talking with Sophia, telling her about how... Well, it says that she took care of Scissors. We don't know exactly what happened. Um, but then the woman starts talking with Sophia, telling her about how she saves priceless artifacts from destruction, often replacing them with duplicates that get stolen and then auctioned off. And she offers Sophia a job. Reinhardt and Paul are in jail, being held for their own safety, and also to be questioned by the feds about what in the world is going on in the small utah town uh, uh suddenly the police bring in scissors who is wearing only boxer shorts uh he was found in the street almost naked as soon as the police leave scissors gags up a lock pick set we find out that scissors was a stage magician and i love that as a backstory for a hitman um it's one of those appalling things where he is a cold-blooded murderer but also he's kind of charming as uh, as we get to know him uh, and uh, he frees himself with this lockpick set and he tells Paul and Reinhardt where Sophia is being held so that they can send police after the woman that double crossed him and then he leaves like he picks his way out of the jail cell <laughs> and just walks out uh, days later Paul uh, so like that's kind of our, our last moment is the police arrive uh, free Sophia and then we get a moment to breathe days later Paul has quit his job but won't be prosecuted for the suspicious behavior regarding putting artifacts back he takes Sophia and Reinhardt back up to Swallow Valley Reinhardt says this is exactly like one of the books he read about Native Americans in his childhood in that story the Indian swims through an underwater passage into another canyon that no white man ever knew about they see a pool of water exactly like what was described and they swim through to a perfectly preserved set of cave dwellings in another canyon Epilogue, two years later. Sophia is going to teach a class when she gets a text about an artifact that is up for auction. When she looks at it, she realizes it is the pottery that Paul put back on their first trip to Swallow Valley. And she's upset uh, that someone has gone and stolen this. But then she gets a message from Paul saying that the thing, uh, the one that is on sale is fake because he planted it there and he moved the real one to that per perfectly preserved cave dwelling that's on the other side of the canyon wall that you can swim through to. And then Sophia begins her class by saying, I'd like to talk about the problem of authenticity. The end. That's all there. You don't need to buy it. <laughs> uh, I, I, that was a, you know, a very streamlined plot uh, description that omits a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the character moments and a lot of, I think the charm of the novel that comes through when we just kind of get the bare bones plot, but that's actually also a pretty complex plot. There are a lot of moving parts in this story. Uh, I can safely say that I was exhausted <laughs> trying to uh, keep all those plates spinning, but it was really fun. I had done, I'd done other books that were uh, a little bit more linear and I was really, really fascinated about collisions of plot, you know, like uh, what happens if one story runs across another story, runs across another mm -hmm. story and they kind of braid and build up uh some kind of larger narrative uh, of these interlocking parts. It was, it was pretty fun to think about that. And I, I actually looked at some, uh, went down a rabbit hole of videos about Japanese joinery. Mm -hmm. You know, these, they, they build these temples and they they lock these beams in the temples together. Without uh, using nails or screws. Yeah. Without right? nails. And I was trying to think of, you know, that's really, really amazing craftsmanship. And I wonder what could be done uh, with a narrative to make that kind of feel like that works. Yes. And, and the characters, I think braiding is a good description. What you said there, because like the character of Reinhardt, like we meet him when Sophia is giving the lecture, like we've already met Sophia. Now we're meeting this new character, Reinhardt. And then he goes off on his own journey. And uh, then it's like, well, you know, how is his path going to intersect again? Uh, and before he intersects with Sophia, like he's going to run into the Ashdown brothers and to scissors, uh, you know, before he, he and Sophia meet up when he's dehydrated out there. So like there, there's different intersections that are happening at different points, even though the plots themselves aren't all yet clearly connected for the reader. Yeah. And one of the things I was playing around with, because of course, as an English teacher, you know, you, you always get to hear about the monomyth and, and, uh, you know, the hero's journey and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, what happens if um, one person is 
the hero of their own journey, but then they're the mentor for somebody else's journey. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else is the gatekeeper for the other person. And then, you know, the, the, there can be this huge kind of like, I don't know, daisy chain or something of heroes journeys. Cause we kind of think, you know, they call it the monomyth, right? Like, uh, like the one story, but, but we oftentimes think of it as like one, one story. Like if we go to star Wars, right? Like what's, what's Han Solo's hero's journey, you know? Right. And that started getting, that started opening my head up to some, some ideas about how to tell a story. And uh, it got me thinking too, about, about all that stuff that Reinhardt talks about in the book. Like, you know, like I am, I am living a story. You, you are living the story. Now, once we know we're living the story, let's anticipate the next part of the story and we can sort of figure out how to live. And I just started thinking about how we start, sometimes we bring our own templates of about what a story is to somebody else and like lay it on there. And that may not be what they're thinking. Um, but we, we kind of still do it anyway, right? Like we ascribe things to another person's story that maybe they're not going to ascribe to it themselves. That's why everybody's mad at Reinhardt for doing it. Like you, like he just gets <laughs> told over and over again, just quit it. Stop. Don't yeah, talk I, to us about your quest anymore. I like what you're saying about, uh, you know, we, one person is on their own hero's journey than that, but they have a different role for someone else because everyone's a protagonist of their own story. And if we're calling it the monomyth and say that like, this is the pattern that people's own individual lives follow that inherently would also mean that you, you are something for someone else, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you, in your mind, you're the hero on the journey. Uh, but to someone else, you're uh, maybe a gatekeeper <laughs> that's preventing them from getting through uh, to, to the level they want. Or maybe you're the mentor or, or, you know, an ally or, you know, whatever it may be. Right. Or the dark, the dark force or the, maybe you're just the sword. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it was fun. It was really, really a fun part. uh, of the book to think about and it emerged from the writing like i didn't start out trying to do this it just seemed really really natural at a certain point to be like this reinhardt guy man he wants to really plug into something real um and so let's just try to figure out different ways for him to plug into something that feels real and authentic to him after getting to experience a whole bunch of things that didn't and it, it uh, I mean, it does feel like this kind of postmodern move of like acknowledging, um, you know, the text as you're as you're going through the text, right? Acknowledging yeah. that, yes, there are these beats that we all kind of know. But uh, when that kind of thing is done, uh, you know, with the with with the right skill level, like it, it becomes something that's adding insights instead of just winking to the audience. And and it's easy, right? It's easy to do something referential. Um, so I, I do have to say that when I was thinking about doing this, it was my attempt to be like Italo Calvino wrote if on a winter's night, a traveler and it's the greatest. And in my own little way, I was like, maybe I could try to, you know, knock on that massive door just a little bit and say, can I try this too? Um, to, to write something that has a metafictional angle to it. Mm-hmm. It was really, it was really fun. I, I don't know if I, uh, I'd have to figure out different ways of doing it in other projects, but for this one, it seemed like just the right move. And it was really, it was really fulfilling to kind of work that through. So before we started recording, I had said to you that in my intro, I was just going to say, we're discussing characters from the picnic in the ruins. And, but I said, I said, do you, did you have a protagonist like that? You really thought this was their story. And you told me like, actually something that's been kind of fascinating is to see which characters people relate to. And so for me, Sophia was kind of the protagonist that I was following the most or that I saw her point of view the most. And I thought, Oh, I wonder what kind of insights. And then it hit me like, Oh, she's the grad student who's trying to finish a research project. So (laughs) I, I understand why maybe I was drawn to Sophia (laughs) as a uh, protagonist type character. Uh, But what, what have you found in it? Like you say, that's kind of interesting to see who are people resonating with? Uh, With different readers, uh, there's kind of a different sense of gravity um, and for me writing it, I went through different passes with, uh, or drafts, I guess is the right way to say that, um, really focusing on different sets of characters. So there was one draft where I was really, really following those Ashdown brothers. They, they were the ones that had my heart and my attention. Um, and then there was a draft with Dalton and there was a, draft with um Sophia and then there's a draft with Reinhardt and each one I really tried to um like we were saying before I tried to rethink of them 
as the central protagonist. Um, but I do think if there's a, a, a kind of, if the book has a brain, it's Sophia. If, if to go Wizard of Oz on that, like, mm-hmm. um, but I think if it has a heart, maybe it's Reinhardt. So it, um, it feels and like that's and that's the that's the joke, right? The Dickens name, Reinhardt. So mm-hmm. and Sophia Shepherd, because of course she's trying to get all these people out of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's very Dickensian <laughs> to, to, yeah. to do that that on the nose. Uh, I gave dude. away my tricks. So when you say like the 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 brain and the heart, I can see where like Sophia is doing some of the, like the intellectual arguing of like what is the past what what are artifacts and reinhardt is like on the event like the romantic adventure right is, is that yeah. what you're getting at with those yeah i would say that that reinhardt's capital are romantic um and i would say that um sophia's the modernist right in a history of ideas like she's she's so rational <clears throat> and she's so scientific about what she thinks should be happening with the land but at the same time, like the modernists did, you know, Sophia's going, man, I'm not 100% sure I'm okay with the enterprise I'm involved in. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, I think everybody's everybody's in that situation, except for maybe Byron, who um, Byron is pretty sure he knows exactly what he's going to do and why and how and everything else. But he's even his brother mindset. Lonnie, yeah, he's got a growth <laughs> mindset. There's <laughs> Um, that's a little Easter egg for everybody in there um, who like the Carol Dweck. But yeah, By- Byron is pretty pretty set on what he's going to do. But Lonnie is like, man, I-, I don't think we're doing the right thing, right? Like when it gets really bad and they've disturbed a burial site, Lonnie Lonnie's the conscience at that moment. And he's like, this is bad, man. Uh, we're doing the wrong thing. And, uh, you know, again, Dalton he he's represents a perspective which is sort of the the pragmatist he's just like man i just whatever's going on here i just don't want to have to do any more work <laughs> um yeah, like, uh he's in a lot of these stories where there's like federal land and local law enforcement like you expect the butting of heads but as soon as it becomes a federal case he is just fine shoving all the paperwork off to the feds <laughs> that was the thing I, I always ask like why is there this posturing between like the local cops and the fbi and all this stuff and i just think of people who are just trying to do a regular job would be like wait you're gonna take this over sweet i'm gonna go get a sandwich this was like, a big headache for me and that headache is gone <laughs> it's over that's right i'm just gonna go back and get the paperwork done and uh uh and you know dalton in the in the story he's he's got uh he's got a lot in his own life that open loops he's got to close mm-hmm. and so uh yeah he's just like shoot if i don't have to think about this anymore i can i can go try to get my house sold yeah and stuff like that so um it was really fun to to try to juggle that many different um perspectives but you know i figured this would come up because we're on the protagonist right mm-hmm I think if we want to go with real strict definitions of protagonist, um, you know, I think Sophia is the one that guides and pushes the narrative forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets to be the rescuer and that was a really, really fun. Um, and I think maybe sometimes important thing to do is to um, have a situation where there's a, there's an imperiled man out there and she's sort of, pretty conscious like i'm gonna be the one who gets you out of here alive Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i think that she really does get to be the hero in a lot of ways even though uh at a certain point in time then she she uh she's both the rescuer and the rescued um but then i even tried to make that set up like her rescuer is a woman yes Uh um and all of that kind of stuff was really important to me to make sure that, that that was happening the villain's a woman um, and well, the reason that Sylvia gets kidnapped uh, isn't because she's the weakest. It's because oh, she has all the information we actually need. Yeah, <laughs> like, she has she's all the, the information. One who, she's, she's really the one smart. Seen the big picture. <laughs> um, and yeah, the villain wants to bring her in because she's so smart. Because she's doing work that nobody else is doing and thinking things that nobody else is thinking. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I, I could intuit where a lot of the inspiration for like the local landscapes and everything came from, knowing where you live and your involvement with some of the projects that you've been involved with. But one thing that kind of fascinated me that you brought in is the um, what, something that I've read about, but I haven't done a whole lot of research on, is like the German fascination with Native Americans. Yep. And, uh, and and with Reinhardt, you you kind of give us some glimpse into that. How like how did you become aware of that and what kind of research do you have to do to be able to bring that in and feel like you were giving a good depiction of what this other culture's view of our culture you know, or, or of American or Native American culture is? I, uh, man, I don't even remember. I just remember and in graduate school, um, we were um, reading a book, uh, a novel called How German Is It? I can't even remember who wrote it. Um, it was a really, really amazing um, kind of postmodern book. Um, and the conversation drifted over to um, the German fascination with native culture um, and also thinking about their love of a writer. He's kind of, there's a fictional version of him in the book, um, but Carl F. Mai, um, who was the favorite of Hitler, of uh, um, Einstein. There are Carl F. Mai streets all over in small towns in German. He's kind of like Stephen King. Louis L'Amour of Germany and like the, um, is super, uh, you know, pop culture type writer and yeah. well known by everyone. Everybody knows him. Kids know him. Adults. Lo- they just that the German people just love this guy. Um, but his books are pot boilers. They're, they're just awful. I haven't been able to make myself read one all the way through. I've read <laughs> bits and pieces of it. They, well, this is like, uh, you know, early 1900s, right? Yeah. Or, yep. And and so he he created these characters uh, like Winnetou and Shatterhand, um, and they're they're garbage. Like the minute if you know two things about uh, indigenous people, really, it's all garbage. He didn't really come here. He was a liar and a cheat, um, and so a lot of the stuff was fabricated. It was, and so it felt like the most postmodern thing. Uh, there was, and it's one of the things that led me to kind of want to try to write a little bit of a postmodern crime novel because I was just feeling it when I was in there that what happens when you try to write about uh, a culture that's not yours without knowing anything about it, um, you get the worst case of cultural appropriation that you can matter uh, imagine. Um, and so this is what fueled Reinhardt's conceptions of what he would find out here and what he was searching for. It also fueled a lot of Germans uh, to think about um these native American people, um, in a way that isn't true. And it creates all kinds of complexities for indigenous people as well. Most of these German people aren't, aren't, um, enamored of native people because it's a weird way, but it's not like, I guess, negative. It's, it's really weird. I, I did a lot of reading for what, uh, native essayists and journalists had to say about this. And there's complex feelings. And a lot of it boils down to, well, they're earnest, but it's weird. <laughs> it's earnest, but it's it's maybe uncool, but it's kind of cool. At least it's nicer than the people who didn't honor treaties and stole from us and uh, gave us the wrong kind of food and nutrition. And now we suffer with uh, adult diabetes and uh, you know, running out of the way numbers and ongoing bad policy. And they don't listen to us. At least these people like something. But then again, it's also kind of wrong feeling. And so I wanted that complexity to be in Reinhardt, but I also felt like it was an entry point. You know, I am a white Scandinavian German heritage, uh, American person. Um, and so I felt like if I was going to try to do some kind of cultural critique, the appropriate Avenue for me to do that would be through Reinhardt. And then to say, you know, there are so many writers, Louise Erdrich, Tommy orange, Stephen Graham Jones that are writing right now uh, and writers from kind of uh, the, the recent uh, in the sixties and the seventies um, vine Deloria read those people to get that perspective. I think everybody should, but I wanted to be able to say a little bit of something about what I feel like white people have done out here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's what you see in the Reinhardt character. And you see Reinhardt have like the the revelations of um, what I expected was never here. 
Yep. Like and what I'm looking feels... for was was like I am frustrated with the inauthenticity of this tour, but also what I thought was authentic does not exist. And he gets he has an encounter and he gets so upset with himself. He's so so mad at himself for being a sucker, I guess. Um, and that was a moment that I thought I hadn't seen depicted before, right? A, a person having that encounter. And in in culture today, right now, you get a lot of people who go through a lot of, um, I would say, gyrations, right? Or rejecting when someone say, hey, right, like there's some systemic racism. And they go, no, there's not. Not me. Not Not every white person does this. And I thought, well, why don't I just turn that around and have a character go, I think I'm terrible. I think I fell in to the same trap that I see now I see that we all fell into it. And I, I'm just, yep. it doesn't make me singularly villainous. It just makes me one of the masses that fell into it. Right. Right. And, and, and he gets to, what he gets to do is change. Right. And, and so I guess in some, in some ways I look for characters who have an arc and who can change. And I think from the, the main characters, if it's like choose your own protagonist, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophia Reinhardt, even Paul, right they they come around they change or they inflect over the course of the novel um i'm not sure dalton does he has he he uh starts a novel having a diet coke and he ends the novel having a diet coke <laughs> and uh needing to put his house up for sale and needing right? to have his, and, put and his and house so, up for sale and so he was static but i feel like everybody else kind of went went on a path went on a journey but even with that journey i think one thing that having so many multiple viewpoints uh, does successfully in this is um, it is a complete story, but also you feel like this was a slice of moment in their lives, right? Like th- th- this isn't right. Like where, where are they going to be in the future? Where, where did they come from? And I think it works completely perfectly to have Dalton be a static version. Like who <laughs> this week didn't like transform his life and move it, move him forward. He's still, he's still there. And that's fine because for these other characters, well, it ended their lives for some of the characters uh, and it transformed their lives uh, for some of the characters. And uh, like Sophia, like she's like stayed on the path. Like we see her as a teacher in, in the epilogue. Mm-hmm. So she, she moved forward on the same path she had been. Whereas, uh, you know, Paul had to leave his job because of what he had been doing. But, but even then the thing that kind of was maybe one of the most fun things for me to write was, right there at the end where she gets the phone call and all everything, all the energy they'd expended, all the light and heat to try to maintain some, I don't know, like inner compass about what we should be doing with artifacts. She just finds out that it's, there's a futility to it. And then she has to walk back in the classroom. And I like the fact that she had something planned and she said, let's change Mm -hmm. today. We're going to talk about something different. I have to. And so even right at the end, you can see, or what I was trying to do is have Sophia pivot in another way and say, okay, if this is what's going to happen, this is how I'll react. And I think you said that at the beginning that, that everybody's kind of reacting through this. And that was her, her final move was to react again. Um, I, I like that idea that, you know, that she is, we're seeing, you know, a, a one more pivot in the, in the, in the epilogue that shows, you know, her, her character is still um, moving forward. Um, with and by the way, I have a secret possibility for a sequel. We'll see what the, um, what the market wants to say, but, but mm-hmm. I, it was hard for me to set these characters down. And so. That, that, I mean, it felt like the characters, and I think what you described as the different drafts are, is revealing in that we're getting these snippets of these characters but they all feel like they could be main characters, right? <laughs> like like there, there's, there's a shared uh, level of depth uh, and personality that's given to the characters as, as they move through. And so, yeah. like we're saying, Dalton doesn't necessarily change as he goes through, but like I, I got to know Dalton pretty well uh, and what his personal struggles were and his relationship with his secretary, you know, those kinds of things um, definitely were, were there that maybe would have been more highlighted in those other drafts. Um, one thing, one other thing that I think the, the, the novel does successfully is it raises some really complex issues and does not pretend to say there's a simple answer here. <laughs> it kind of says we're in a rough spot all around. 
and here's all the reasons we've gotten here. Here's what everyone's great ideas in the past were that have actually made this a really convoluted mess. And now these characters that we kind of have come to, to enjoy hanging out with are going to have like some heated arguments because they have different points of view about what the, the right path forward is. Yeah. And, you know, I thought going into this that I might be able to write a book that, um, you know, you spend four years on something and you think maybe you're going to figure it out, figure something out. It's uh, it's bottomless. It's so complex that the moment I feel like I was coming up with an answer, I'm not. And so, you know, once the book came out in January, you know, we're, we're still looking at things like the, the statements that, that are made in the book about like, people are just going to start taking Instagram pictures of all this kind of stuff and it's over. Well, that that's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Bears ears right now. It's undeveloped. It doesn't have a visitor center. It doesn't have a front country. People just hit it straight on. And there's no education. Um, years and years ago, right at the beginning, you know, almost 100 years ago, when the parks were coming together, they realized they couldn't regulate compliance. There's just too many acres out there. So they had to do it with education. Um, they had to get people to want to choose the right thing. And what people are discovering right now because of the pandemic is they're going out to these places and they aren't um, because a lot of the visitor centers were closed. The the places were open, but the educational arm of what was happening in parks wasn't really happening quite the same way. People who'd never been to parks before were just trying to, you know, get out. Mm-hmm. And since they couldn't, <laughs> I don't know, since they couldn't go to the roller skating rink or whatever, um, or TGI Fridays. I, I'm I, I'm maybe being unnecessarily hard on people. Um, they 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 don't know how to comport themselves out there, and so there's massive amounts of destruction, um, particularly in the Utah parks right now, because we'd run large scale advertising campaigns to bring people here. There's this whole initiative called the Mighty Five uh, that worked for a while, and now that advertising worked and people came. And there's a lot more people here than ever used to be. Well, even we saw it like in a news story, like out of nowhere, the, the, uh, what are they called? The monolith that appeared in yep. a canyon in Utah. And, and when you were talking about, uh, if Sophia takes pictures of this valley and puts it, like people will know and they will come. And there was a half second where I was like, what people really got? And then I thought of the monolith. Like as soon as people knew there was this monolith in this random canyon in the middle of a national park, like they, like the park is like, we need to hide where this is because people are going to come. And they came <laughs> like as soon as it was geotagged as to where it was. And uh, there, I, I remember reading the news articles about like the level of traffic was just like the area was not meant for it. And yep. there was a lot of damage that was done to the area because of this little mini viral phenomenon. A, a writer friend, uh, Paisley Rectal, she teaches up at the U. Um, we did an event together for the book launch of this. And uh, right before the book came out, I think it was in December, um, Paisley basically said, Hey, you need to write about this mon- monolith. Like it's right in the space. And so I, in January, I had a piece come out in LitHub that kind of drew the connections between what was going on in Picnic in the Ruins and what was going on with this monolith and what was going on with Impact. And um, I talked even about Trojan horses, right? Because I'd sort of config, uh, conceived of this book as a kind of Trojan horse, right? Let's pack some information about. Uh, cultural appropriation about identity, uh, the identity of a place, who owns the past, how do we manage this stuff? But government bureaucracies and what government they're, bureaucracy they're, they're changing lines of what where border is of what's protected, and yep. what's not, how that's going to change, not just what gets in mind where, but like who lives where, <laughs> and to put all those kinds of things in. But that's a that's a tough sell, right? To be like, but but you could say, hey, uh, there's this kind of crime story. Um, come read that. This is this book's fun. This book's kind of funny too. Um, and that was the thing that I was hoping would be a little bit disarming because really, when you start thinking about what's going on, what's happened uh, to the people who uh, who used to live here and still do live here, um, with all of this other kind of activity going on, um, it's pretty sad. Um, and so, part of the reason that I used the the humor was a little bit of Mary Poppins approach. Um, because it's it's pretty sad and serious when you start thinking about what's happening. And uh, also but again, no... my purpose was to bring people who don't normally think about this stuff to mm-hmm. kind of start having some thoughts um, about these kinds of things that they maybe never had. 
And I've seen in some reviews and some things that readers have said that that's exactly what happened. And that actually kind of warms me the most to know that that somebody picked up this book, they they went into it and they're like, wow, I, I've never thought about this before. Yes. And I was gonna say, like, it, it's uh, kind of sad w- what's happening, but also it's so complex. There's no quick version to hand out and say, well, you know, we it, it's great that the you know, government is protecting these lands and expanding what's being protected because that comes with a whole host of issues, right? Right. Make and another it, national park that causes problems. Don't make a re- national park causes problems. Yeah, put it in a museum it. causes problems. <laughs> Don't put it in a museum causes problems. I put mean, it back that's... where it was from. That causes problems. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, and so I was really trying to, to dramatize really like, okay, so let's imagine different timelines. You know, what are the ways that we could do this? Oh, they all seem to cause a problem. Yeah, and and I think that's one thing that, that you get away from the book is that this is a problem and there's no quick and easy solution that needs to be done. But also ignoring it is not the solution either. Right. And I think that's, that's the right. a, a go-to reflex for people when there's like complex things that make them uncomfortable. It's like, well, maybe we didn't talk about it. Like, why are we talking about this so much now? Uh, you know, that, that just makes us more aware that it's a problem. That's why we're talking about it, <laughs> to make and, us more and, aware that there's a problem. <laughs> and again, if I had to write a book that basically was no matter what you try, someone is still going to, like, do the wrong thing, that's maybe a little bit overly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the idea out there would be maybe, maybe in addition to saying, let's point out all these problems, maybe say, you know, there's something about the human spirit at, that at least people kind of in the face – of all this trouble and all this potential for um, disappointment, good people still try, mm-hmm. right? They still try to do the right thing. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, one other thing that stood out from the book was that you managed to give, as, as we're bouncing through these different points of view of all these different characters, you gave like a different tone when it was their section. Mm. That's not, uh, I'm glad you noticed that. That's cool. <laughs> so like with the, the brothers, it's a lot of dialogue. It's about like the quirky language that they use and like their personality quirks. Like the one is obsessed with his, his bacterial flora. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it became very dialogue heavy in those, but when it was, um, you know, Sophia and Paul, it was descriptions of the land, but in a little more analytical version than when Reinhardt's describing the land, which became a little more romanticized, uh, you know, version of it. And also more internal monologues with, with Reinhardt as he's considering his adventure and and his role. Uh, did that develop naturally or were you having to like post it note? Like, okay, I'm writing this section. I need to highlight this kind of, <laughs> this kind of tone. Uh, there was a moment in which I decided to do the the schema that you're talking about. And it's, it makes, it just makes me so happy. I'm smiling pretty big right now because I've had a number of conversations about this book, but we hadn't really talked about that aspect of it yet. Um, one of the things, the, the first vision of this, which is um, the, the kind of romantic and, and modernist ideas. Mm-hmm. What I, what I saw was kind of three sets of perspectives. Reinhardt loves all this stuff so much, he knows what none of it is. And so he has to just be responding to surfaces, right? Colors and shapes. And he makes a lot of analogies about the land. Uh, he impresses his own stories. So like when he sees the big high tension power lines, he imagines that they're iron golems uh, carrying power lines, like just that would have been a, like a kind of German story for that. Um, uh Sophia is scientific about it and she's really trying to actively learn. Like she has guidebooks and everything like that, but she's, she's knowledgeable, but she doesn't know a lot yet. And then Paul is the person who, even though he's not from the area, it's his job to be an expert of it. And so he's the one that knows the different things. He knows that the Paiute word um, for a shooting star is star excrement, the kinds of things that an interpretive ranger would know. And so I was really, I said, okay, these are the, these are kind of the three um, frequencies that I want kind of in there. And then once I figured that out, then I was trying to decide, okay, what would the Ashdowns be? And they would be the people who grew up in that place. They're the only ones who, who did really besides Dalton, but they're the ones that grew up, but they don't know what anything's called. Or if they do, they know what the, what they call it as kids. But it's one of those things where, Maybe they're so familiar with it that it doesn't register. It's so, not special. Yeah. Right. And it's, so it's I, ordinary to them and extraordinary yeah. to someone like Reinhardt. And so I left the description almost all the way out 
mm-hmm. because their their concern was for themselves, for their own safety. Um, there are a couple of moments when um, I tried to experiment with like writing time lapse uh, with the Ashdowns, and that was kind of their mark. Like like they just sit and wait for stuff to happen. So I tried to figure out what's the way to write that. So they there's a scene where they're sitting in a uh, in a deer blind, kind of waiting for some bad thing to happen. And I was trying to show time passing, um, clouds moving. And I watched a lot of um, desert um, time-lapse photography to see what that would be like. Um, but yeah, you 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 uh, nailed it, that, that those were the streams of things that I was trying to do. But it started with, I'm going to begin with Reinhardt. He, what would it mean to see this romantically? And to get my head ready for it, because I'd seen a lot of stuff, I, I got books on paintings. I got Maynard Dixon... Um, and, uh, there's a guy that's down in Southern Utah, uh, Jimmy Jones, and I got those paintings and I wrote the landscape from the paintings, not from my own experience or from my own photographs, but, mm. f- but for, um, Sophia and Paul, I did that from my own experience, that's my great. own photographs, my own memories, because I felt like it would be, it, it would give me that difference. And, and that was a good trick. I think that worked out for me and, I'd kind of like to try that photograph versus painting approach with, with another book. I like that. Thank you for sharing your insights as uh, you know, as far as your writing process. Um, I know you talked about uh, you know, kind of what each, you know, maybe some of the roles that different characters have, was there a favorite for you to write? Like just as someone who's going to sit down and, and I've got to tackle this next scene. Was there some, some voice that, like made you a little more excited to sit there at the, at the, at the blank screen. Um, the Ashdowns Ashdowns trying to figure out how to have these great conversations with these ignoramuses, um, (laughs) was really fun. Um, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers. We've talked about this before. Um, I wanted to be like, is there a way that I can do what they do, but do it the way I do it? You know, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, and so that was the experiment with them, but one of the characters that I ended up not realizing I would fall in love with was uh, a fundamentalist character. Her name is Euphrenia. Uh, and she's the one that has the razor uh, uh, ski glasses and uh, is the one that drives the suburban mm-hmm. <laughs> um, through all those people. I ended up really, really becoming fascinated with her um, and really wanted to try to represent her and the kind of the polygamous women and their children that are living down here in Southern Utah, because when I started thinking about writing, they're a group I hadn't seen represented maybe ever. I mean, there's oh, some, re- there's some good some, memoirs like, and some true, yeah. true crime stuff that's going down on there. And also but some more kind of, uh, it feels a little more like salacious or, uh, exploitative, yeah. Uh, yeah. views of them. And I wanted to, I, I really wanted to, to do right, uh, by a group of people here that I think, have either been misrepresented or overlooked. Um, and I felt like I could contribute that way. And so uh, I spent some time, I had a student who is from that community and went back to teach in that community. And I, I talked to him for a while um, and just really just observed and spent some time down in Hilldale, Colorado city, just, just watching to see if there was something that I could do. And so I ended up really, really having affinity for her there's a group of three girls that do Sophia's hair. And I fell in love with those characters as well. Um, They're just so innocent and smart um, and sharp. And oftentimes I think they get misrepresented as kind of foolish and simple. And and I don't think those people are, and that was really fun to do. Well, thank you. Uh, I know that uh, this kind of project uh, is something that is kind of, uh, a hurry up and wait where it's like it consumes your life. And then there must be like a long pause as things are in process and yeah. getting worked through. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you're able to see it now out in the world and start seeing some of those reactions from people. Uh, and for any listeners who are looking to pick it up, I know it's available from most of your large online re- retailers, but also, you know, your local bookshops would be able to get it. Uh, Absolutely. If they don't have it now. And even if you don't have a local bookshop, go to the King's English up in Salt Lake. Um, a lot of these bookstores have been keeping themselves going um, by um, offering to sell the books. So, you know, bookstores that have been great to me while this is going out, Changing Hands down in Phoenix, um, uh, Third Place Book up in Seattle, the King's English. 
um, Snowbound Books out in Michigan um, and Marquette. They're all great places. And so just find a store um, that's selling the book and order from direct and send that money. We all know Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more money. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Did you have any final thoughts about Picnic in the Ruins? No, this has been really fun to talk to you uh, about this and to, um, to just get to see uh, what happens when my book is out there. We've been, we've known each other for a long time. And so it's really cool to get to have this conversation, Um, you know, in the midst of the different kinds of conversations we have about comic books and, science fiction movies and things like that, that play random um, games, <laughs> play random games. This is uh, when I kind of step away from that. This is the, the world that I spend time with. And uh, I'm kind of working on a new project now. That's uh, kind of a continuation of different desert spaces and a lot of the things that I'm interested in. And so I, I guess it's like a novelist just kind of keeps writing maybe <laughs> one big novel that gets chopped up into pieces all right well i look forward to your next project and uh again listeners i highly recommend picnic in the ruins if you're looking for a uh, good read so that's going to wrap up this episode thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank scott tofty who composed our theme music you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on twitter you can follow at protagonist pod or at jaderowski and our producer andrew is at Disney minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash podcast and you can also look up dueling genre on uh, discord and find a dueling genre channel that has all of the dueling genre podcast hosts they're ready to talk about uh their most recent episodes todd is there anything you would like to plug uh be good uh, nothing nothing to plug nothing's uh, out there um but uh go buy the book and uh talk it up it's been uh, fun to talk with you tonight Oh, and I'm out on uh, Twitter at uh, at Todd Peterson. Um, That's kind of the social media where I can be found. All right. Uh, Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. What's the what's the one thing I can say that will get me sent home?